From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, September 12th. I'm Marco Werman. The Obama administration vows that those who killed U.S. diplomats in Libya will be brought to justice. This was an attack by a small and savage group, not the people or government of Libya. Also, Libyans who knew U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens remember him as a true friend of their country. He really believed in Libya, in some cases more than us. Our full coverage just ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama today ordered increased security for U.S. diplomats around the globe. The move follows the attack on the American consulate in Benghazi, Libya, which killed the U.S. ambassador to Libya, Christopher Stevens, and three other Americans. The Obama administration is still investigating what happened at the consulate in Benghazi and at the U.S. embassy in neighboring Egypt in Cairo. Both buildings were the targets of angry protests yesterday over an obscure film produced in the U.S. that is said to insult and ridicule Islam's prophet Muhammad. In Cairo, the incident culminated in protesters taking down the U.S. flag, but in Benghazi, some of the demonstrators were armed with heavy weapons. Today, President Obama called the attack in Benghazi outrageous and shocking. And make no mistake, uh, we will work with the Libyan government to bring to justice the killers who attacked our people. The president also remembered Ambassador Stevens, particularly his work in Libya during the revolution that toppled longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi. At the height of the Libyan revolution. Chris led our diplomatic post in Benghazi. With characteristic skill, courage, and resolve, he built partnerships with Libyan revolutionaries and helped them as they planned to build a new Libya. President Obama speaking earlier today. Aladin Muntasser is a businessman based in Libya's capital, Tripoli. He was a longtime friend of Ambassador Stevens. He recalls how he and Stevens were on the same flight into Tripoli in October of last year, just two days after the fall of Sirte and the death of Muammar Gaddafi. What struck me was the happiness, the joy that he showed that day. As you know, he was there from the very early on. I think he was the first uh, non-Libyan diplomat to arrive in Benghazi when things were very uh, dangerous. And he maintained the communication between the West and the Transitional Council. Uh, So he was there from the very beginning, and he saw how this really started with just a spark and eventually led to the downfall of that regime. In a way, that victory, as he was part of that process and he witnessed all of it, that was a victory for him as well. And it was very clear that day, the joy and happiness on his face and his uh, demeanor. Mm. Tell me more about uh, Christopher Stevens' role during the uprising. What was he doing? 
he was involved in the assessment of what you refer to as the rebels and our uh, leadership at the time. And uh, he was instrumental in the decision to help us and to enforce the no-fly zone. Mm. And as you probably recall, if that didn't take place on the 19th, Benghazi would have been very similar to what uh, Homs and uh, Aleppo is right now in Syria. Mr. Muntasser, uh, we'd like to listen to Ambassador Stevens himself right now. This is a video that uh, the ambassador used to introduce himself to the Libyan people when he first arrived. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Chris Stevens, and I'm the new U.S. ambassador to Libya. I had the honor to serve as the U.S. envoy to the Libyan opposition during the revolution, and I was thrilled to watch the Libyan people stand up and demand their rights. Now I'm excited to return to Libya to continue the great work we've started, building a solid partnership between the United States and Libya to help you, the Libyan people, achieve your goals. Mm, it's numbing to hear that. Chris Stevens recently wrote in an email, Mr. Montasser, that he was very encouraged by how life was changing for the Libyans, that people were smiling again. I mean, those little details, uh, not all ambassadors get that stuff. He really seemed sincerely plugged into what Libyans were going through. That's absolutely correct. He frequented a beach that's used by the very common people in Tripoli. He didn't uh, go to very high security, exclusive resorts or anything. He actually used the beach that very simple common people would use. And he would go there and sit there and suntan and all that and speak to people, take pictures if they asked to. He was uh, frequenting a lot of the fast food joints here in Tripoli. He really felt at home here. We really connected with him. There's a famous uh, picture of him when he visited the uh, city of Garyan, where he had very traditional Libyan food that you have to eat with your hands. Mm-hmm. I've never seen an ambassador actually join in and make really people see something that we've never seen from an ambassador or an expat here in Libya before. And you received an email from Ambassador Stevens about an event that the two of you were planning for this Saturday evening. Can you tell us about that? Ambassador uh, Stevens is a friend of the family, and we were planning on setting up a reception, his honor, welcoming him. It's traditional here that uh, new ambassadors are uh, welcomed like that. He was very, very excited and very happy and uh, grateful for this opportunity to be introduced to the Libyan uh, people and to the community here as well. What will you remember personally about the ambassador, Mr. Montasser? I The thing that really, every time I think of him, I spent all these hours since uh, I got the news this morning, is his uh, very outgoing nature. I'll give you an example. I had a meeting with him a month and a half ago or so, actually a little bit before Ramadan. And he noticed that I was a little bit down. I was disappointed at some of the things that are going on. And he kept on assuring me that things will improve, that this is just a natural process and that we will overcome this. This is the kind of person he was. He was very positive and he really believed in Libya, in some cases more than us. Aladin Muntasser, a businessman based in Tripoli and a good friend of the late ambassadors. Christopher Stevens' idealism really shines through in the video we heard a moment ago. It's at theworld.org. 
Nick Dowling is president of security consulting firm IDS International, and he's a former official with the National Security Council. His firm is working in Libya. Nick, as we heard from that good Libyan friend of the ambassadors, Stevens was the rare type of American official who embraced local culture and met so many of the people in the community where he was working. Was this a mistake? Can you do this as an American official in the current political climate? Well, first, this is a real tragedy. Chris Stevens is exactly the kind of foreign service officer and ambassador you want in a country in transition like Libya. He was a great friend uh, of the revolution and helped uh, Libya achieve its freedom of Moh- against Mohammar Gaddafi. Uh, and his uh, passion for uh, Libya and his uh, expertise on Libya and Arab culture uh, is part of what made him effective. So uh, not only uh, can you do that, it's essential to understanding the local culture uh, and uh, and embracing that as part of your your work to effectively uh, represent the United States, but also understand the nation that you're representing the United States to. Right. That's what you're supposed to do. But is that still uh, something you can do? Absolutely. The... uh, uh, the service of the United States government, uh, whether you're in uniform, uh, a diplomat like Ambassador Stevens, a uh, d- development worker, there's no ex- no uh, exception when it comes to America's uh, foreign service officers. Uh, they have to be out meeting, talking with the community, talking with other officials uh, to be effective. Uh, in this case, uh, my understanding is Ambassador Stevens was, was going to the con- consulate to help uh, evacuate the people uh, there and to deal with uh, the uh, protests there. And that's uh, what put him in harm's way. Uh, That's what you want a leader to do is to be out uh, front trying to protect his people uh, uh, at a time of crisis. The details of exactly what happened are are, are still unclear in Benghazi. I mean, we do know that uh, the ambassador was in a convoy. So is uh, another real concern travel security? Travel security is a big concern. The um, this is not the first attack on an ambassador in Libya in the post-revolutionary era. Several months ago, the, there was an RPG attack on the British uh, ambassador's convoy. Uh, fortunately for them, they, uh, they escaped uh, that attack without harm. Uh, so uh, that is absolutely a point of uh, vulnerability is moving around. But again, you cannot do diplomacy from uh, behind uh, you know, a six-foot wall. You need to get out. You need to engage with the uh, foreign officials. You need to engage with the community. And uh, our uh, brave diplomats do that every day, putting themselves at harm's way. But we need to relook at the security situation in light of uh, these attacks to make sure that uh, we do everything possible to keep our diplomats safe. We have heard that there are lots of guns and heavy weapons floating around Libya. But I mean, these protesters were upset with a movie. Does this mean that when a demonstration like this happens in Libya, the the protesters show up with rocket-propelled grenades? Well, I think there's reason to believe that this was more than just a, a spur-of-the-moment protest. Uh, the, the level of weapons that they had, the timing on September 11th, the target that they chose, this is the, this is the classic tactic of, uh, uh, of a militant, of an extremist, to provoke uh, a crisis and to polarize a situation. It, it sounds from the way you describe it that the protesters were very deliberate and, and calculated uh, in, in staging uh, what, what happened yesterday. What, what's your source on that? I said there's reason to believe, and I think that uh, it's more based on the you have two attacks simultaneously, one uh, in Cairo, uh, one in Benghazi, uh, and the level of uh, heavy weapons that you saw. 
it's more of an analytical judgment based on the types of things that you saw in terms of the level of violence and uh, coordinated attacks. Nick Dowling, president of security consulting firm IDS International. Thanks very much. You're welcome. As we mentioned earlier, U.S. officials are still investigating yesterday's events in Benghazi and Cairo. For now, they haven't publicly pointed to any solid evidence that the killing of Ambassador Stevens and the others in Benghazi was planned. Rami Khoury is director of the Isam Faraz Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. He joins me now in the studio. Uh, a rhetorical question, perhaps, Rami, but one that Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, posed today, and one which many Americans I've seen ask in social media circles. How could this happen in a country like Libya that the U.S. helped liberate in a city like Benghazi that the U.S. helped to save? It's a tough question. Um, I think we have to separate the two uh, very different things. One is the uh, state of the transition in Libya and many other Arab countries now. And to separate that from the issue of uh, the limits of freedom of speech and the issue of respect for other religions, those are two completely different things that get mixed up. To really understand this uh, terrible incident and to come to grips with it, we have to analyze those two things uh, separately. The United States Embassy is the easiest symbol for anybody who's upset about anything that comes out of the United States. It's like the people who are angry at economic disparity in this country go and occupy Wall Street. They don't go and occupy Safeway or A&P supermarket. They occupy Wall Street. So the embassy is a symbol. And this uh, this video uh, was so upsetting and offensive to so many people uh, that they just gravitated to the American embassy and carried out their terrible crime. Uh, and it is a crime. There's no doubt about it. Uh, there's no rationalizing it. But we have to understand that these two very different things happen at the same time. The Americans play a constructive role, I believe, in the transition to freedom and democracy in Libya. Uh, and at the same time, you have some uh, Americans who are engaged in incredibly offensive activity, which other people, by the way, would find criminal. To insult their profit uh, would be seen as actually a criminal activity, not just offensive. You can hear more from Rami Khoury about all the factors he feels came together to produce the tragedy that unfolded yesterday in Benghazi, Libya. Our conversation continues later in the program. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The U.S. exports about 100 million tons of coal each year. And as domestic use of coal decreases, American coal companies are looking to send more of their product overseas. If there were export terminals on the West Coast, that would be the fastest way to get American coal to Asia, the center of global coal demand. There are now five ports in Washington and Oregon considering setting up export terminals. The coal for those terminals would come from the Powder River Basin of Wyoming and Montana. Ashley Ahern has our story. This is Keith Williams. We're touring the Black Thunder coal mine in Gillette, Wyoming. The Black Thunder mine is one of the largest open pit mines in the world and Keith Williams runs it. Down we go. Williams steers his truck along a bumpy dirt road 300 feet down into the immense hole in the ground. Dump trucks the size of California bungalows rumble around us, hauling away millions of pounds of dirt to get at the coal underneath. It looks like an ant colony under siege. Almost half of the coal mined in the U.S. comes from this massive strip mine and 12 others like it here in the northeastern corner of Wyoming. 
the gaping holes in the earth ring the city of Gillette like a string of black pearls on the rolling grasslands of the Powder River Basin, the jewels of the local economy. Gillette depends hugely on the coal industry. State Representative Tom Lubnow has lived here all his life. Gillette has become a marvelous place to live. Very low crime rate, marvelous facilities, swimming pools, recreation centers, parks. The coal industry has transformed Gillette from a cow town into a boom town. 5,000 people work in the local mines, and the average income here is $60,000 a year. But there's concern that the good times might not last. Domestic demand for coal is falling fast. U.S. consumption is at a 40-year low and the Gillette region could start to feel the pinch. So industry leaders here are looking for new markets overseas. Keith Williams of the Black Thunder Mine sees exports as a big opportunity. I think the uh, export market opens us up for additional market share, and we would certainly want to increase market share if we get the opportunity to. Much of that opportunity lies in Asia, and the fastest way to get American coal to Asia is west. Problem is, there are no coal export facilities on the U.S. west coast. Right now, nearly all of the Powder River Basin's coal heads east and south on trains like this one, bound for power plants around the U.S. But the coal industry now hopes to send hundreds of these trains west, over the Rocky Mountains and down along the Columbia River, to five proposed coal export facilities on the coast of Washington and Oregon. Exporting coal could be the salvation of Wyoming's coal industry, but it's got many in the Northwest rattled. In far northwestern Washington, near the city of Bellingham, Kevin Ranker guns the engine of his motorboat. Now it's going to be a bumpy one. Ranker's the state senator who represents the nearby San Juan Islands, a bucolic tourism hotspot. As we come around a bend in the coast, we can see an oil refinery and an aluminum smelter in the distance. Between them is a long stretch of tree-lined waterfront. It's the proposed site of the Gateway Pacific Terminal. It would be the largest of the new coal terminals, with a capacity of more than 50 million tons. And that would bring almost 500 ships a year to this rocky stretch of coastline on their way to and from Asia. I'm hearing a lot of concern. Mostly I hear people who are fearful of what this will mean. Ranker's constituents worry that all of these ships moving back and forth, each carrying hundreds of thousands of gallons of fuel, will increase the likelihood of an oil spill. We're going to see an environmental and an economic impact that will devastate Washington state. It's not just the possibility of a disaster on the water. Opponents here and in Oregon say all that new train traffic will mean more air pollution, coal dust, noise, and congestion, all to serve a market far beyond the U.S. Of course, others here see things differently. The biggest thing is the jobs. Bellingham carpenter Mike Hardesty stands on his porch on a summer night near a sign showing his support for the project. The five proposed coal terminals could create hundreds of long-term jobs and several thousand jobs during construction. I'm pro the work, and I want people to build houses, and I want them to uh, spend the money here. Not doing it, the money's going to go somewhere. I think if we've got something that can fuel our economy and rebalance trade, I think we better take advantage of it. That's Gateway Pacific Terminal spokesman Craig Cole. He says the plan to ship coal to Asia is just what this region and the country need. Right now, we need to sell whatever we can sell, whether it's a natural resource-based commodity or whether it's high-tech. The question being debated here is whether the full cost of the coal export plan outweighs the economic benefits. And along with the local concerns, there's a very big global issue lurking in the background. Coal is the single largest source of CO2 emissions, which makes it really the heart of the climate problem. 
Richard Morse is a coal expert at Stanford University. He says models predict global coal consumption will rise by 65 percent in the next 20 years or so. The export terminals proposed for the Northwest would feed that appetite. That's why climate activists and some local politicians have set their sights on stopping the big coal plan any way they can. And it's not just Northwest Greens who are sounding the alarm. Back in Wyoming, the sun's setting as L.J. Turner walks along the creek near his red-roofed ranch house. I've been here all my life, and my family's been here since 1918. Turner and his wife run Red Angus cows and sheep on their ranch about 10 miles from the Powder River Basin's largest coal mines. Turner is no fan of the coal industry. He says it's wrecked his water supply and gobbled up grazing land. He's also worried about what burning fossil fuels is doing to the climate. The first winter that Dad was here in 1919, he said it never got above 20 below for six weeks. This last uh, winter, we had uh, green grass in uh, February. And uh, it's just, it's changing, it really is. Turner says burning coal is a problem, no matter where it happens. But sending Wyoming coal across the Pacific is a definite step in the wrong direction. Whenever that coal gets uh, exported to uh, the Orient, you're going to see it coming back over in pollution. I don't think anyone in their right mind wants that here, but it's going to happen because this is a small world. That sentiment won't earn L.J. Turner many friends here in coal country, but it's likely to reverberate throughout the debate over the planned Northwest coal export terminals. For The World, I'm Ashley Ahern, Gillette, Wyoming. Ashley Ahern also reports for Earth Fix, a public media collaborative in the Northwest. China's booming economy is powered mostly by coal, and growing coal pollution is causing major problems both within China and around the globe. The world's Mary Kay Magsat examined the impact and possible solutions to China's coal addiction in a special series. You can find that at theworld.org. Now, from coal to oil for today's geography quiz. In fact, we're looking for the city that's home to Germany's largest oil refinery. It's in the state of Baden-Württemberg, close to the border with France. The city was founded in 1715 around its beautiful palace. It is a carefully and beautifully planned city. There's speculation that it served as an inspiration for the layout of Washington, D.C. Washington's planner, Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, was given the plans for our German city before he began work on the new U.S. capital. One last clue from today's news, the city now serves as the seat of Germany's Supreme Court. The city was chosen so the judicial branch wouldn't be too close to the other seats of German political power, like Berlin and Frankfurt. And today, many in Europe were watching the German Federal Constitutional Court. It handed down a ruling in the city that may give Europe's ailing economy some hope. Stick around and we'll have the answer and more on that court ruling later in the show. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, hundreds die in two factory fires in Pakistan. The deaths highlight a widespread lack of safety for workers there. There are no sprinklers in these places. There are no fire exits. None of the things you'd expect in terms of health and safety regulations. That story coming up on The World. 
PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The White House today is condemning the killing of the U.S. ambassador in Libya and three of his colleagues. We're trying to understand the factors that led to this tragic event. What happened exactly is still under investigation, but we do know this. Ambassador Christopher Stevens died after the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya, was attacked by a well-armed mob. This is a criminal act that cannot be accepted at all, but I think it's important to understand why criminal acts happen. That's Rami Khoury, whom we spoke to earlier about what happened in Benghazi. Khoury is director of the Isam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. He says it's important to remember what preceded the attack in Benghazi, a protest over a film produced in the U.S., which many Muslims say insults Islam's prophet Muhammad. It's not animosity towards the U.S. It's animosity towards a a bunch of radical, free, criminal, offensive extremists who put out videos uh, that denigrate the prophet of one of the world's great religions. Uh, It's not about America. It's about these idiots who are putting out these terrible videos, and people are reacting against that. It happens that the embassy is the symbol that people gravitate to. Uh, and And the American government knows that. That's why it protects the embassy. Generally, there's systems to deal with this. Once in a while, these systems fail, and this is what what happened. Have you seen this mini-movie or this trailer? I'm not even sure what to describe it. I saw 14 minutes or so of it yesterday. What, what do you find offensive about it? I haven't it? actually seen it yet. Mm-hmm. I just heard about this last night, and I'm going to go and look at it today, but I heard what it included, uh, and it's very offensive to, to people of faith. Now, the vast majority of Muslims who hear this or see it would not react by storming the American embassy. They would react in a a much more rational way. But a small number of radicals uh, will do that. And you see this in every society. You see the radical fundamentalist Christians in the United States. You see radical uh, Jewish militants burning olive trees in occupied Palestinian land. You see radical Hindus attacking Muslims in, uh, in India. Every religion has a small fringe group of extremists who will react like this. And it's really important not to take that and then say, well, all Muslims or all Hindus or all Jews or all Americans are like this, because this is the mistake that people make when they resort to cartoon-like black and white, you're with us or against us uh, attitudes. Well, Rami, tell uh, tell us more about the the kind of more measured reaction in in the Arab world today to the film and to the attacks on on the uh, consulate and embassy uh, yesterday. Well, I think the more measured reaction is people will ask about, well, where is the limit to freedom of speech around the world? We had this a few years ago with the Danish cartoons. And the caricatures of Muhammad. Right. They were very offensive cartoons about the Prophet Muhammad and Islam as a whole. Um, There are very uh, tricky philosophical questions about freedom as the absolute value. This is one of the issues that this controversy should uh, should raise for discussion. Uh, is freedom and is absolute personal freedom the highest moral value that any society should aspire to? This seems to be the, the answer in, in the U.S. and in, in Europe. The personal freedom 
is absolutely the highest value. You can insult people, you can offend them, but as long as you don't kill them or shoot them, that's acceptable by freedom of speech. Are, are people, Arab media today questioning that? Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think not only Arab media, I think people all over the world are questioning it. The other side of that is, well, and I would subscribe to that, I would say absolute freedom is not the highest value. I think that, that human mutual respect and dignity is the highest value with a high dose of freedom. But the freedom should be relative to the factors of respect and dignity. We see it here in the United States with people who get angry at uh, Arabs or Muslims, and they go and they attack mosques and they burn mosques. And they did it in the South and they used to attack black churches. These things happen in every society. This is nothing peculiar or exclusive to Muslims and Arabs or Libyans. This is a universal fault of human nature. But then I hear the critics cry, then you've got to have respect for people's faith, but you also have to have respect for embassies. Absolutely, absolutely. And and the vast majority of people in Libya, I think, would defend the American embassy. Many of them did. They fought back against the people who attacked it. The overwhelming majority of people in Egypt and, and Libya and across the Arab world would never do anything like this. But a small minority did. And we have to not allow our anger at that criminal act by a small group of people to change our view of the rest of society. Rami Khoury, thank you very much for coming to the studio. Thanks for having me. Rami Khoury is director of the Isam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. You can see Khoury answer my question about the impact of all of this on Syria. The video is at theworld.org. As if the news out of Libya and Egypt wasn't bad enough, we have to move to another tragic story in Pakistan. Hundreds of workers died yesterday in two factory fires, the worst fires in Pakistan's recent history. The worst of the two blazes occurred in a Karachi garment factory, the other in a Lahore shoe factory. Both facilities lacked emergency exits, and that underscores Pakistan's notorious problems with industrial safety. The BBC's Alim Makbul has been following the story from Islamabad. Alim, you've spoken to a lot of people on the ground there. Tell us what happened. Well, really horrific details coming particularly out of that uh, fire in Karachi. The latest we have is 289 people dead in that fire. It started late yesterday when we hear there was an explosion. A generator, we believe, was faulty. But that fire started very close to the only exit in the building. It was a four-story building and people were forced to go upstairs uh, up to the higher stories in the building because on the ground floor and the lower floors, all the windows had bars on them. So people were forced upstairs where the fire became more intense. You know, terrible eyewitness accounts of people jumping from the higher floors Mm. and from the roof and otherwise people being trapped inside, calling relatives outside saying they knew they were going to die. So, Aleem, were these illegal factories or legal factories but just not regulated at all for safety? Look, it's often said that a factory is illegal in Pakistan because they don't have the right paperwork or this and that. But a lot of factories in Pakistan don't have what you'd call technical or correct paperwork. This was one of the larger ones. We we always hear that they're illegal and that they've done something wrong. But actually, in Pakistan, the regulations do exist. The safety regulations do exist, at least on paper, to stop things like this happening again. We've seen it so many times in the past, nowhere near this kind of scale. But what always comes out is that, in fact, the Pakistani authorities' ability to enforce these regulations never really comes through. You know, for the people who have suffered in this, some of the poorest people who work in these factories, you know, there's one chap I spoke to who lost six members of his family. They just feel 
utterly helpless. They feel like nobody is on their side and they have no faith that this is going to change. And the victims, uh, I mean, who are they? We hear so much about child labor in, in this part of the world. A lot of children? Well, there were some children. The youngest uh, of the dead so far that we've heard about was 12 years old. A lot of women as well. It was a clothing factory, so a lot of the workers were women. But uh, it spanned the whole range. You know, there were elderly working in there, young men working in there. This was the source of income for a lot of people in that area. They were getting around $5 a day for working very, very long shifts in very uh, difficult conditions. But, you know, the clothing that they were producing was exported, most of it, to the markets of Europe and the United States. So there's a lot of clothing made in Pakistan that's sold across the U.S. and the world and presumably produced in factories like this one. Yes, and the benefit, if you like, uh, that Pakistan has over other countries is that it is very cheap. A lot of the cotton does come from here, of course. But, you know, the primary factor is that it's cheap for Western companies to use factories over here. But to try and make up the margins, you know, there are no sprinklers in these places. There are no fire exits. None of the things you'd expect in terms of health and safety regulations. Every inch of these buildings is often used up. And really, they're appalling places to work. But then, you know, it's very difficult, I suppose, for Western governments or Western organizations. Do you say, right, we're not going to take any clothes from countries like this? because then thousands of people lose their jobs and it's uh, perhaps even more poorly regulated. But on the other hand, is there some responsibility of the companies that are ultimately taking these garments to make sure that the people who work for them are properly treated? What people here really are asking now, with the scale of this tragedy, is that going to spur the authorities on to really do something about this and really ensure that things like this don't happen again? But it feels like so much would have to change in Pakistan for it not to happen again. Aleem, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Okay. The BBC's Aleem McBool in Islamabad. We tend to ignore them if we notice them at all, but we really shouldn't. Ants are among the most successful life forms on Earth. There are thousands of different kinds. Well, the California Academy of Sciences is helping people to appreciate the world's diversity of ants. It's assembling an online gallery with high-resolution pictures of the insects. The project started in North America, and now the Academy has sent a team overseas to take even more photos. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program Nova has a story. A little black ant struggles to free itself from between Zach Lieberman's thumb and index finger. He found it next to a cement ledge in central London. These little ants in the genus Lazius, you'll find them anywhere that you go in London. They're very adaptable. I mean, they're everywhere in the city. That's Liam Erickson. He and Lieberman are part of a three-man team from California now touring Europe to look at ants. Hey, can you grab me that one? He's still on your hand. But these guys aren't here to collect ants on the streets. They've come to explore what's behind us, London's famed Natural History Museum and its vast collection of ant specimens from all over the world. Zach Lieberman steps into one of the massive climate-controlled collection rooms at the museum. For an entomology nerd, it's an honor to be able to work with a collection like this. It's heaven. Just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of specimens. Lieberman pulls out one of the 600 drawers filled with ants, each one pinned and labeled. Oh yeah, Dinoponera, the largest ants in the world. They're from South America and can grow one and a half inches long. But 
there are equally amazing, or in my opinion, usually more interesting ones that are a millimeter long. Sometimes there's ants that you literally can't see them, and then you get them under the microscope, and it just opens up this whole world. That's where a lot of the really hidden beauty is. And that's why this team of young entomologists is here, to reveal and document that hidden beauty using a special kind of camera. The third member of the team, Ryan Perry, places a caramel-colored ant specimen under a microscope. He swivels a knob and brings the head of the ant into view on his computer screen. He's about to take a high-resolution photograph. The trouble is, only the front of the head, where the antennae are, is in focus. The back of the head is blurry. So he takes a series of photographs, front to back, changing the focus slightly with each image. He then uses a computer program to stitch the photos together. The result is a single image where every part of the ant is in sharp focus and can be enlarged on the screen. We're basically taking an ant, a tiny little ant, and making it the size of a house cat. Perry points to his screen where the ant head's just been rendered. There was the mandible, the hairs around the the face, the, the antenna, the antennal sockets, the eyes. All these are very important for ID purposes. So it's really important that we get each one of these little hairs to actually show up in focus. For each species of ant, Perry takes at least three high-res photos, the headshot, a side shot, and one from above. His team then sends the images back to the California Academy of Sciences. It posts them on a website called AntWeb. The goal is to document every ant species on Earth. One reason for the online project is that many of these museum specimens are fragile, and physical collections degrade over time. Digital photographs are more durable and reduce the need to transport and handle specimens. Images can also tell you a lot about an ant's behavior and biology. Zach Lieberman. By looking at the way their bodies are shaped, you can sort of guess. You know, if they've got a particularly long trap jaw mandibles, they're probably ambush predators. And if they're slender and don't have any eyes, they're probably adapted to living underground. In addition, the project's organizers say what they're doing is democratizing access to ant specimens. Researchers and lay citizens, regardless of how close they live to a natural history museum, will now have a means of entering the great ant collections of the world. But taking pictures of all these ants is time-consuming. The trio in London has photographed more than 2,500 specimens already and still has over 1,000 to go. The team works long days and often comes in over the weekend. Perry and Lieberman say their main survival strategy is caffeine. I've drank more tea, I think, since I've been here than I have my entire life. No, I'm a diehard coffee fan. We, we make it strong and we make it plentiful. And it looks like they'll be needing more caffeine. The Americans first came to London in May, expecting to be done by September. But there are a lot more ants here than they anticipated, so the time in London has been extended. The team will then head to Genoa and Geneva and possibly Germany and Russia. That'll take about a year, at which time they'll regroup, check their finances, and plan their next trip, probably to Brazil and Australia. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, London. Take a close-up view of some amazing ants, including one that looks like a gargoyle. Ari's posted a slideshow at theworld.org. And check out the Nova program, Lord of the Ants. We've got a link from our website or go directly to pbs.org slash nova and search ants. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International.
The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We need to answer our geo-quiz now. We were looking for the German city that's home to the country's highest court, the federal constitutional court. The answer is Karlsruhe. Many in Europe held their breath today as six red-robed judges in the city handed down a ruling that may help save the European single currency. The world's Clark Boyd has been covering the euro crisis for more than two years now. And Clark, first of all, give us the background here. How can a group of judges in Karlsruhe, Germany, hold the fate of the euro? I mean, the whole continent in their hands. Well, it may be a little too much to say they held the fate of the euro in their hands. What they were ruling on is a petition that was brought by some opposition groups in Germany. And and it was actually a petition signed by more than 30,000 Germans that questioned Germany's participation in this new bailout fund that Europe is putting together that's supposed to help bail out the likes of Greece, Portugal. Spain, um, and anybody else that gets in trouble down the road. And uh, the petition was basically saying, hey, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, German chancellor, you can't just sign off on this without parliamentary approval. So that's why the constitutional court was ruling on this. All right. So uh, some more details on what this actually means for the euro, this judge's ruling today. So what the judges ruled was is that Germany can participate in this, which means that the uh, European stability mechanism, as it's called, will go ahead. And when you say stability mechanism, you're talking about the bailout fund. I'm talking right. about the bailout fund. That's what it's called, the ESM, as it's known. And so $650 billion that's how much they're they're going to put into it to help shore it up. Germany's share of that, $245 billion, the lion's share by far, right. which makes sense. They're the strongest economy in Europe. But you can see why it would be such a touchy issue about German taxpayers and, and you know, buying into this and saying, do, are we really going to keep paying for everybody else's economic problems? So it, it almost sounds too good to be true that there's all this money now for anybody who, who might go – uh, bankrupt. Uh, is, is there a hitch to this? Yeah, there are a couple of hitches. In the court's ruling, there were two hitches, as a matter of fact. The first is that if Germany uh, is asked to provide more money to this than they've already set aside, they have to get parliamentary approval to do that. And secondly, the German judges said that they want an opt-out clause in the European stability mechanism that says if, if Germany suddenly realizes that they don't like the way this is going, they can get out of it if they want to. Wow, sounds like a prenup. And the reaction today from around Europe? Well, the reaction from around Europe has been positive. Certainly, uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel said it was a good day for Germany and a good day for Europe. It shows that Germany is taking on its leadership role and is a reliable partner. Uh, elsewhere around Europe, people were saying, oh, this is, a, this is great. Germany is really stepping up here. Now, now the bailout fund can get going. Now we can really show the markets and show everybody that we're serious about uh, solving these problems. And meantime, the European Parliament w- was in session as well. How did they react? Well, uh, they weren't reacting so much to the news out of Germany today, but uh, the European Commission president, uh, Jose Manuel Barroso, was giving his annual speech to the parliament today. He's pushing very strongly for a more centralized Europe, more Europe, not less. He's, he's, he laid out a vision of a, a Europe that's a much more a federation of nation states and, and uh, much more closely economically and, and politically integrated. Uh, and and here's the, here's, I, I just wanted to play a clip for you, one little thing that he said uh, during the speech today. It is time to match ambitions, decisions, and actions. It is time to put a stop to piecemeal responses and muddling through. 
It is time to learn the lessons from history and write a better future for our Europe. So one might think that this new bailout fund would end the muddling through uh, that Mr. Barroso was talking about. O- overall, Clark, wh- where do things stand as far as saving the euro right now? Well, Marco, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, people are always hoping for a magic bullet that's suddenly going to solve this problem. Uh, people in Europe have been waiting for that for <laughs> for a couple of years now. Uh, is it a magic bullet? I just don't think so, because I, I think... You know some of the some of the things that are underlying the crisis are still there. And on a day when the German court hands down this decision, you've got protests in Athens over uh, further anti-austerity measures. You've got Portugal asking for more time for its bailout, and you've got a country like the Netherlands, which is holding general elections today. Anti-austerity parties are set to do quite well. And even here in the United States, where you know all the figures indicate economic recovery is shaky, Europe is America's biggest trading partner still. The European economy continues to go south. The American economy is going to get hurt, too. And that could have major implications, including in the elections in November. The world's Clark Boyd. Thanks for the backgrounder to the Euro bailout fund and the answer to the geo quiz today, Karlsruhe. We end today with a band from Portugal, Baraka Som Sistema. The group has a unique take on Kuduro, the electronic dance music that originated in the former Portuguese colony of Angola in the late 1980s. By reviving Kuduro's sound, the band has struck a chord with a new generation of young clubgoers in Lisbon, and they've been heating up dance floors around the globe. Reporter Marissa Neff has more. Baraka Som Sistema hails from the suburbs of Lisbon, an area that's heavily populated with African immigrants. The name of the group translates to mean Buraca Sound System. Here's founding member João Barbosa. Buraca is like an area in the suburbs of Lisbon where some of us grew up. It had like this interesting connotation with all the African immigrants. What we were doing was so based in Lisbon that it, that it made sense to have that geographical connection on the name. The mix of African and European influences in the band's hometown is reflected in their music, and it recalls the origins of Angolan Kuduro in the 1980s. Back then, music producers in Luanda began forming their own club beats, inspired by dance music from the West. But the technology they had was far from cutting edge, so they combined African rhythms with dated PC samples to create the burgeoning Kuduro sound. Here's a cut from Kuduro's early days by Helder Ohe du Kuduro. The members of Buraka Som Sistema grew up listening to Kuduro on Portuguese radio. In 2006, they started a DJ collective focused on re-editing classic Kuduro tracks. Soon they landed a gig at a club in Lisbon, and as Barbosa tells it, things caught on pretty quickly. From that night, it became kind of big. It's like everyone could identify themselves in what we were doing, like everyone that was our age. We did four nights and then the club got shut down by the police. At the end of those four nights, we were like, okay, what are we going to do with this? And so it sort of, from there, it became a band. Another member of the band, MC Calaf Angelo, was born in Angola. When asked how their music fits into the larger history of Portugal's colonial relationship with his home country, Angelo says that for young people in today's Lisbon, regardless of their roots, the question is moot. I think for our generation, that's a question of living. The same way Angolan kids got influence on Portuguese hip-hop or the other way around, I don't know. Like uh, There's always this idea that between the younger generation, those questions kind of fade out.
for the world. I'm Marissa Neff. song is Hangover from Baraka Som Sistema. You can see the band's nutty video for it at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.